From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. What does it mean to taste the soul of a place? It might sound abstract, but it's a never-ending quest for L.A. chef and restaurateur Curtis Stone. I think, in fact, the television show has helped us in our development of a really thoughtful menu. Stone is a native Aussie who's been all over the world in search of new ingredients and exceptional wine. His global influences are evident at his restaurants Maud and Gwen. And now, PBS. He's the host of a new public television show premiering this weekend. It's called Field Trip with Curtis Stone. Hi. How are you, Evan? So great. I feel like we've come full circle in a way with this TV show. That's so true. You're so right. I mean, the first time I met you, you were just beginning to introduce spices and all of these amazing tastes from the outback that no one had ever heard of here. Right. Yeah. It's funny, you know, travel's always been such a um, huge part of what I've done in a kitchen. And, you know, I think it sort of makes you the chef that you are. You go into different places and being inspired by different things. And it's always been something I've loved. Yeah. I think it's one of the reasons why those of us who end up cooking for a living need to travel. Mm. You like feed yourself. Right. You know, I think as I get a little older and I say a little older, but you know, I'm in my mid forties and I remember as a kid, as a 20 year old, all I wanted to do was go and work in all these incredible chefs restaurants and then at some point you end up owning your own place and it's harder to do, you know. It's, it's a little odd if you call someone up and say, do you mind if I come hang out for a week in your, in your kitchen? So this travel sort of allows you to do that, to experience things. And I think that's the most beautiful thing about being a chef. You never stop learning. You always get that opportunity to grow and see something different and then experiment with it. And yeah, it's what I've always loved. It's funny, when I think about Australians as a people, I think about them as a globe-trotting people. Yeah. Because they're so far away that when Australians travel, they tend to go for a long time. It's true. We're the ultimate couch surfers. You know, <laughs> if you if you know an Aussie, they've usually got a visitor in town from somewhere back at home because we, uh, we're 14 hours from the West Coast in the US, and that's about as close as it gets. <laughs> yeah, we're close to Southeast Asia, but Europe and America and stuff, it's it's a long way. So when we travel, we, we do it for a good good amount of time. So did you start traveling young? I did, yeah. I finished my apprenticeship. We do um, like a four-year apprenticeship in Australia, which is constant working with school in between. You go to school each week, but it's a good way to do an apprenticeship because you put in all of the knowledge that you learn in, in a classroom into practice. And I finished that apprenticeship and you know, I worked with a lot of European chefs in Melbourne um, and all of them said the same thing. You know, if you're going to be any good, you've got to go work in Europe. So literally the day I passed my apprenticeship, I packed my bags and I left for, uh, for London. Mud is your Michelin-starred restaurant in Beverly Hills. Congratulations. Thank you very much. It's really intimate, and the tasting menu experience is also intimate. And you used to offer rotating menus focused on a single ingredient, which mm. a lot of us loved, like, it's carrot. <laughs> <laughs> it's artichoke. But then last year, you started focusing on regions of the world. Why did you shift? Well, look, we'd done nearly four years of the single ingredient menus, and it was a menu a month, so it was a really intense period of my life. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, doing close to 50 menus in a short period of time was draining, because 10-course menus and one ingredient had to feature in every course for it to sort of um, exist. So you're constantly thinking and constantly creating, which I loved and adored, but at the same time, Four years on, we sort of, I think as a team, got to the place where the spark had left us. You know, we weren't as excited about what the ingredients were going to be for the next year. And 
I thought, well, if we're feeling like that, then the guests soon will too. So before we ruin it, let's change it, you know, and evolve it into something different. And as we sat down and sort of spoke about what we thought was special about Maud, one thing that we all really adored was the wine pairing that the wine team would do each month around the food. And we'd even gotten to a place where I'd sort of say, just give me a wine that you want to feature and I'll create a dish around it. Sort of reverse engineering it as opposed to the chef makes the dish and the wine team have to scurry around and find a wine that suits it. So we spoke more and more about wine regions and, you know, they're such incredible parts of the world usually a wine region because there's gastronomy around them, of course, and the art and craft of making a, a wine is an incredible part of what we do as a profession. And I thought, what if we replace the ingredient with a wine region? And of course, it's a stupid idea that you could never afford to do. And the team were just so excited by it. And I've always said, you know, as a chef, your real task is to keep your team happy. Because if you keep your team happy and motivated, they do an incredible job. And I looked at it and I thought, I can't walk away from it now. You know, they're too excited about it. So we have to do it. So we decided to pack our bags and take not the entire team go, but, you know, four or five of us, you know, usually to each region. So then, of course, we had to slow it down. We couldn't do a menu each month. So we did four a year. Uh, and yeah, the guests have loved it. And, you know, you sort of, I guess if we're doing the menu around Burgundy or Tuscan is the next one we're doing, you know, people can come in and do the pairing and taste a variety of Tuscan wines and learn so much about the microclimates and the different varietals that are made within that region. And then of course we interpret the region into a menu. So yeah, it's lots of fun. And it seems a perfect entree into field trip. This six-part series that's premiering on PBS this weekend, where you and your team at Maud visit several different regions of the world and then bring those insights back to the restaurant. When did you start thinking about the concept? We started talking about what we were going to do, developing the menu and how hard it would be to do it. You know, you're going to go to a place. And I didn't want to go to a place and learn some of the familiar dishes and just come back and repeat them. I wanted to go and really try and interpret it. So we try and take into consideration the music and the history and the attitudes and the culture and, of course, the ingredients and the wines, but try and sort of really put our finger on what was interesting to us about that region. And as I was explaining it to a buddy of mine who was this incredible cinematographer, He's like, dude, this is an amazing idea for a TV show. And I was like, really? And he's like, just let me come and shoot it. So he literally came and shot the first one with one other person, and it was a team of two. Um, and then Where was that? That was Rioja, yeah, which <laughs> turned into an episode, believe it or not. I mean, everyone would say there's no way that that could. But, um, you know, they sort of just fly on the wall style, followed us around, and turns out that Dave Gorn, who's the director of photography, is just brilliant and would throw a drone up in the air and capture the region in the most magical way. And, you know, he was really taken with the different types of story. We'd go and meet a goat's cheese producer, and then, of course, we'd meet a winemaker, and we'd meet a chef who'd take us mushroom foraging. And so he sort of just followed us around, and was he was really taken with it and said, you know, this is a show, I'm promising you. So he cut together a little three or four minute clip from our trip and I saw it and I was like, wow, I think he's right. So that was it. We started a production company and very earnest, you know, we do it on a very small budget, but because the, he's so talented, as are the rest of the guys that shoot it, it looks really beautiful and yeah, it's been cool. The episode I saw, you visit the Australian outback, yeah, Kimberley, mm-hmm. and I have to say that It blew me away because the whole thing where you're visiting with this community of Aboriginal elders Mm -hmm. and you allow them to speak about their place and their culture to us, 
I found it very, very powerful, not to mention the fact that how gorgeous is that place? Isn't it sensational? And I mean, as a people, the Aboriginal people mean so much to me, and they're such a beautiful race, group, community of people that when you're around them, you sort of, you're inspired in a way that is, it's it's almost impossible to explain it. I could really, you know, you seemed like so deeply chilled mm. in that episode, like you were just there. Right. Like when a place just grabs you. Yeah, it sure does. We were with Brian and Bundy, the two guys that were sort of community leaders and elders of that little area, the Bari people. And they talk about their ancestors. And for the most part, their ancestors have existed on that land, on that stretch of beach for the last 40 or 50,000 years. And they talk about the good old days as if it was a generation ago. But what they're actually talking about is thousands of years ago and the knowledge that they've built up around the land and the spirit. And we were talking about bush tucker, right? Food that they just get from the bush. And you, you do this walk through the bush with these guys. And they start talking about the type of fish that are in the ocean. They said, well, when this tree blooms, you know that the whales are chasing the mackerel. So the fish will be nice and fatty because the whales are coming in and the migrations happen. They have an understanding of their country, as they describe it, in a way that I I just, it baffles me. If the world were as tuned in to the cycles of the earth as they are, we would not be having this situation that we have now. You're so right. Um, Talk a bit about the fishing experience you had where they put the fish to sleep. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) That was crazy. So we were talking about going to spearfish and go up into a river, and they're telling me, look, there's a big crocodile in this river, so we've got to be a bit careful, and da-da-da-da-da. And I was like, how do you manage that? You know, like, do you take the kids? Do you take the old fellas? Is it safe? And they said, well... The old fellas don't really come into the river because the crocs are so fast. The old fellas will go fishing in the tide pools. And I said, right, explain that to me. How do they do it? And they said, well, they take a root that has a property that takes the oxygen out of the water. So they grind up that root on a rock and then they flush it into the rock pool and any fish that are hiding in under the rocks in the rock pool, they'll just float out. And I'm like, what? I said, you've got to show me this. So sure enough, we go down to a rock pool and they do. And these fish literally just float into the surface after having this root popped in, the bunyad root, which I had real trouble pronouncing. And I'm like, so has it killed the fish? And they're like, no, no, it just takes the oxygen out. So they'll just sort of go into this like tranquil, you know, they'll stop moving, they'll float to the surface and you pick them up. And a minute later, they start flapping around again. And I'm like, it's the most unbelievable fishing that you know I've ever seen and hunting and gathering ingredients and foods for over thousands of years the knowledge again is just so crazy I'm sure there's going to be more episodes are they all going to drop at once or is it going to be typical PBS style where it's week by week you have to actually wait <laughs> you've got to wait yeah that's the old school way of doing it isn't it um yes yeah, so it's going to be week by week and we're going to the first six are going to air now And we've already started the next season, actually. We shot one in Rome, and we were just in um, Sonoma. So So the Rome one that you shot with my friend Elizabeth, I have to wait till next season to watch it. You've got to wait till season two. I'm so sorry. (laughs) She's amazing, by the way. Oh, I'm so happy. I mean, it makes me thrilled that you did that. It's been so great to catch up with you, Curtis. So nice to see you. I've been talking with L.A. chef Curtis Stone. His new show, distributed by American Public Television, is called Field Trip with Curtis Stone. It premieres this weekend on PBS. Check local listings. 
After the break, a visit from another favorite Aussie. Like Curtis, her job has also taken her all over the world, specifically six continents in four months. I'm talking with restaurant critic Besha Rodell when we return. Here Be Monsters is a podcast about, well, it's about a lot of things. It's about faith and doubt, love and loneliness, optimism and grief. It's a podcast about the things that frighten us and the things that we can't get out of our heads. Here Be Monsters, KCRW's podcast about the unknown. New episodes out now. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We're back on KCRW's Good Food. I'm Evan Kleiman. Now we turn to a food writer who went on a whirlwind tour of six continents in search of the world's best restaurants. I remember saying to my husband, this is not going to be travel in the normal sense. What it will be is a recon mission to see where I want to go back to. That's Besha Rodell of The New York Times. You might remember her as the LA Weekly's former restaurant critic. Over the course of four months earlier this year, she traveled more than 100,000 miles and spent nearly 300 hours in the air. It was a mission to find 30 of the world's best restaurants for the first ever joint list between travel and leisure and food and wine. Besha was just back in town from where she lives now in Australia, so I wanted to hear more about this fascinating adventure. Thank you so much for coming here. I'm so glad to be here. When did you get the call that you were chosen to take this culinary odyssey? It was in February of this year, and Hunter Lewis, who's the editor-in-chief of Food & Wine, said that he wanted to get on a call with me and that the editor-in-chief of Travel & Leisure would also be on this call. I had no idea what it was about. I thought maybe that it was an assignment. I'm a freelancer, so (laughs) that was good for me. And they called and explained what they wanted to do and asked if I might be able to do it. It was not something that I thought that I could do initially, honestly, because it required me to kind of blow up my whole life for four months and put my regular gig on hold, which is uh, with the New York Times in Australia, and didn't know if they would be up for it, and just didn't know if I could leave my family for that long and all of those things. So I took a couple of days to think about it and make a lot of phone calls and finally figured out that I could do it. But it was shocking. I think I was in shock for (laughs) those couple of days after I got that call. One of the things that I find fascinating about this assignment you had is that you didn't do it alone. Right. And the list of colleagues who helped you put together a list so you could build an itinerary is an unbelievable list. It's like a dream panel in a yeah, way. Yeah, it really is. And that is mainly thanks to Food and Wine and Travel and Leisure and the reputation that they have and the work that those editors did reaching out to the right people. I mean, and it really is an international list, which I'm really happy about. It's a very diverse list. And some of them were people that I you know, said, if I'm going to do this, I absolutely need to ask these people. And you could probably tell who those are if you look at it. They're the LA people. Um, So Bill Esparza and Chad Colby were both people that I specifically said, okay, I don't know anybody who knows these regions of the world better than these people. But But it was also Alex Atala and Ruth Reichel. And I mean, it was just... Uh, Sophie Peak. Mm-hmm. I mean, just a great sort of one of those. If you wanted to have a last dinner party, who would you invite? <laughs> kind of like one yeah, of those lists. Absolutely, absolutely. 
One thing also that I find really interesting and intriguing is that there are no rankings or numbers. The restaurants are listed alphabetically. So you say in your article, what this list celebrates is cuisine and culture, not rankings and numbers. Talk a little bit about that. The way that it was described to me on that first call was really, if you are going to a city, a country, it's the place that you want to tell all of your friends, oh, you have to go eat here. And quite often that isn't the fancy restaurant. Sometimes it is, but the way that I've kind of been describing it to people is you might travel to Copenhagen just to go eat at Noma. That is a thing that many international travelers do. You probably aren't going to Mumbai necessarily to eat at a fancy restaurant. That's not necessarily the reason why you would go there. There's so much culture and food culture in so many cities and countries in the world that are not based on that kind of very high-end culture. And so I think that the idea that we were looking for places that spoke to the soul of those locations, and I wanted to make sure that if you went and sat in any of these restaurants, you would really feel like you were in that place. And that made some locations difficult, to be frank, but I think it was the right way to go about it. And you spoke very openly about how the assignment affected you physically. And so the fact that you had to land like in Cusco Mm -hmm. and have altitude sickness and like in a couple of hours, get in a car and drive somewhere to eat. I mean, many of us would have just said, oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think that it's funny. Some people see this and say, oh, my God, that's a dream job. How can I be your assistant next time? And some people, I think more the professional leaders that I know, understand how crazy that is to try to do when I was only in most countries for 24 hours. But that's the thing that makes it a job, right? I mean... (laughs) But But it also gives a different kind of focus to your writing because... For a place to reveal itself to you when you're that impaired. (laughs) Yes. And I do think that that was the beauty and the magic of this assignment for me was that I was exhausted. I was existentially not hungry. (laughs) Um, And yet there were still moments of kind of pure joy. And it was that kind of pure joy that's like very specific to travel for me, where you are just in the place and it's not necessarily familiar, but it's revealed itself to you through a beautiful bite of food or a beautiful meal. And that still gets me in my own city occasionally, but that feeling is still pure magic. So there's a place on the list that's actually the first one on the list because it begins with the letter A and you opted to do it alphabetically, Alfonsina in Oaxaca, Yeah, which reading the list for me was the most problematic because I was just, it's the kind of place where in a way you don't want to deliver the demi-mondan world of international eaters to this sort of pristine, lovely family space in Oaxaca. Right. That was certainly a concern of mine. I also didn't want to be so paternalistic that I was deciding that this chef wasn't, you know, ready for that. He is somebody who has worked in really, really well-known restaurants um, in Oaxaca and in Mexico City. So he understands the type of fame 
that there is out there in the chef world, and that is his ambition. I don't think he wants to remain an unknown chef in his mom's house in Oaxaca forever, which is where the restaurant's based. But it is the one restaurant on the list because it's so undiscovered and because it's just in a neighborhood, in a house, that I did feel a responsibility to make sure that it was something that he did want, even if I probably couldn't express exactly how much it would change their life and that business. But I did my best. I reached out to him and said, I want to include you on this list, but I'm worried that it is going to change things for you in a way that you might not even be able to really anticipate. And he said, thank you, but this is an incredible honor and I and I want it. And again, he's an ambitious guy who wants that kind of recognition. So tell us a bit about that place. Oh, it's so beautiful. So it's not in Oaxaca proper, the city. It's quite near the airport out in this neighborhood and the house is down a dirt road. Like the cab driver who took me was so confused about where we were going. You know, there's loose dogs everywhere and whatever. You make a reservation usually through Instagram or WhatsApp and just speak directly with the chef. He serves breakfast most days and then a five-course lunch. And his mother is also very involved in the business. So she does more of the traditional stuff. She makes all of the tortillas on the kamal that's right in the kitchen where you sit and eat. But his food is incredibly refined and would not be out of place in any fine dining restaurant, I think, anywhere in the world. But there's a lot of locals who come and eat there and buy their tortillas from the mother. And he's a really young guy. But I think I do think that he's like one of these guys who's, you know, next superstar. What a singular experience for you to have that experience before the blow up. Yeah, yeah. So and perhaps this is unfair, but I'm going to ask you anyway. So while you're on this odyssey, was there a place where you got to and you just said, you know what, I'm just going to stay an extra day? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, everywhere, because I just didn't want to get back on a plane. But Slovenia was really the one that got me, partly because I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Like this trip was so intense and I was in a new country almost every day. And quite frankly, like I knew my schedule, but I was not thinking, what is Slovenia going to be like? What is the airport going to be like? You know, any of that. So I just showed up in a couple of countries kind of completely unprepared for what it might be in a way that you never would if you were traveling on your own. (laughs) And got to the airport and um, couldn't get a cab to take me to the hotel that I was staying at because it was two hours away. Um, So that made sense. So then I had to rent a car, which I hadn't planned on doing. And I ended up just driving over these mountains. And Slovenia is the most outrageously beautiful place that I've ever seen. And I had no concept of it before that. I hadn't thought about it. It was just kind of this revealing itself to me as I'm driving over these mountains and it was springtime and there was little flowers everywhere and, you know, these old stone, beautiful towns clinging to the side of mountains. And it's like alpine fairyland there. Did that restaurant make the cut? Yes, that's Hisa Franco. A restaurant and a chef that's been featured on Chef's Table. Yes. Yeah. So there's that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything you'd really like to share? I was very adamant that we get something from L.A. on this list. And I came back more than once because the first time around, I wasn't sure that I had found something. And what did you find? I ended up going with Ennaka, 
which is not that surprising for me. The last thing I did for LA Weekly before I left was the best restaurants in LA, and I named Ennaka the best restaurant in LA at that point in time. But that was a few years ago, so there was definitely things that had opened since then that we considered. But going back there and having that experience again, I mean, it's just such a beautiful experience. And when I started thinking about it, it's such an amazing expression of what makes LA so special as a food city. There's a lot of ways you could go with that. But to me, having somebody who has roots in Japanese culture, but is such a Southern California girl, Nikki Nakayama, the chef there, and brings so much of that to it as well, is a really beautiful distillation of what makes Los Angeles so fantastic. And of course, now home for you is Melbourne. Yes. So... It's not surprising that you found something in Melbourne to put on the list. Yeah, and we considered really a lot of things in Australia. I think Australia got more nominations than it should have, given the, you know how big it is of population compared to other parts of the world. The reason I chose Attica is that I think it expresses Australia and it has such a sense of place. That is not a restaurant that could be anywhere else in the world. Ben Shuri, the chef there, is really dedicated to using native ingredients. Native ingredients in Australia these days, are it's a bit of a trend. And so what's happening is people are taking these ingredients that have been used by the indigenous people of Australia for thousands of years and kind of throwing them on top of Asian food or that kind of thing. And Ben is really committed to seeking out the knowledge that comes along with those ingredients and also making sure that when you're eating that food, you understand whose knowledge that is. So that's really important to me. But the first time I ate there was quite emotional for me. And as an Australian person, I think that was part of why. But Ruth Reichel said the same thing when she nominated it, that eating there is an emotional experience. Well, it's so lovely to just get to see you face to face. Yeah, I know. Something that very few people get to do. <laughs> and I'm grateful that you were the person to take on this task. Well, thank you so much. That's Besha Rodell, Australia Fair columnist for the New York Times and former restaurant critic of the LA Weekly. We've been talking about her experience traveling the world to find the world's 30 best restaurants for travel and leisure and food and wine magazines. Now we turn to L.A. restaurant critic Bill Addison, who recently returned from his own overseas trip. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Evan. You had this incredible vacation in Lebanon. I did have an incredible vacation. And I know that it's, you know, a cliche for food writers to gallop off to far-flung locations. But this was just a really special trip for me because I went with my best friend, who is Lebanese, and her family, who I've known for about a decade. I've been curious about the foods of Lebanon all my career as a critic, but especially after knowing Kaline and her family so well, and how different the home cooking is from the restaurant cooking, which is something I think that you probably think about a lot. What were some of the highlights that you could describe for us? A great entree into Lebanese food culture is breakfast. You don't hear about that as much in the Lebanese-American restaurant culture. It's incredible there. And the place to go is Al Susi. It's an institution. It is this one wizened fellow cooking, often with pots and pans in both hands at once, Besha Rodell, who was the critic at the LA Weekly for so many years and one of my dearest friends, did a big, massive project for food and wine where she named 
30 of the best restaurants in the world. And I was so excited because like the week after I came back, I saw that she had been to Al Susi. Um, the thing to order there is fate, which is like spa. Evan is making happy faces, everyone. She knows. Make me fate, Evan, or let's go find it good here. I don't know. <laughs> I need so, it. So I know the Syrian version. Tell ah. me what the Lebanese version is. It was spiced chickpeas with yogurt, crisped pita, and pine nuts. Probably pretty similar, right? The borders are so close to one another. It's so comforting. It's Yeah, it sounds simple, but the textures are so right. The creamy yogurt, the kind of mid-bite of the chickpeas, and the crunch of the pita and pine nuts. Ah, it was so good. The fool is also a big thing there, which is another uh, fool is fava beans, but like the dry that have been simmered with just a little bit of cumin thrown in. And then the hummus with the lamb in the center of it and pickles and olives. And right now... This is all breakfast. This is breakfast. Beirutis are used to this, I guess. And they also stay out really late. Those folks know how to party. Like, this is how it rolls. There was one place, the owner is Lebanese, but the bar is called Anis. He makes really great Southern American cocktails. They're not exclusively like that. If you want Arak, you can get that there. Arak is like the... Ouzo. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Yeah, the licorice-flavored uh, spirit that you add water to and it turns cloudy. But he makes an incredible vercare and he's a really charming guy, so you should go see him. Did you have any particularly amazing home dinners? I honestly didn't because Kellyanne and her family knew that I was interested in eating out. But I had something that bridged the gap between home cooking and restaurant cooking. Some new friends, Nadine Tuma and Savine Aris, who run a publishing house called Dar on Bose, they took me to a tiny town in the mountains of Lebanon it really goes down as one of the great days of my life. The town is called Masur El Shouf. DM me on Instagram if you want details. I'll give them to you. The name translated from Arabic as Cedar's Rest House. And the woman, we just, were, we just called her Shika Wafa. She just cooked for us. She made this incredible dish called Kawarma. And it was preserved lamb. And she opened the jar and scoops out some lamb meat with like the oil it was preserved in, heats that up and then breaks in eggs slowly one at a time and cooks them just until they're poached and scoops them out. And then goes and makes, man, or manuish, manukish, the flatbread that is just a signature of Lebanese cooking. And she spread one with za'atar, oh, it was so good. And another with a, a type of cheese that had been blended with tomatoes, and then she just brought it all out, and we had the feast of pickles and fresh vegetables that the Lebanese are always chewing on, and herbs and green onions. And <laughs> oh my God. Okay, so now everybody's listening to this and is thinking, well, that's fine. Yes. So where can we go to get our fix after listening to this? Okay, I am doing a deep dive search. I would say the best that I have found so far is Hyatt's Kitchen in North Hollywood. I've been a lot of places and it's fine, it's good, but Hyatt's has that soul 
that I'm looking for. The couple who owned this split and the wife opened a new place called Mona's Kitchen in Tarzana. So I'm heading there soon. There's also a place in South Bay that a new friend recommended to me called Playa's Pita. And the food is good, but what you do is you ask for the daily special. And that is like the mother-in-law, the Lebanese mother-in-law cooking like the home cooking and just basically serving you that one dish. Wow. And it's like things like when I went, I'm sorry, I'm just going to butcher the name so much that I'm not going to pronounce it, but it's um, mallow, mallow greens that show up a lot in the Eastern Mediterranean, simmered with chicken. It was just really comforting and right. Wow. Thank you so much. What a treat. It was a treat to share it. Thank you, Evan. I've been talking with LA Times restaurant critic Bill Addison about his recent travels to Lebanon. For a link to his article, visit kcrw.com slash goodfood. Coming up, we turn from the global to the local. I'm talking with Houston chef Chris Shepard about learning to cook in a way that's rooted in where we live. It's a great conversation. Don't go anywhere. We're back on KCRW's Good Food. I'm Evan Kleiman. Earlier this year, the James Beard Foundation announced its nominations from a location that might have raised a few eyebrows. It wasn't New York, Chicago, or San Francisco. It was Houston, Texas. If you've never visited Houston, you might be surprised at its similarities to L.A. With a population of 2.3 million, it's been called the most diverse city in the U.S. There isn't an ethnic majority, and one in four residents were born in another country. It's a mixture of cultures that shape the city's palate in some truly unique ways. You're going to cook some of these food, but don't just cook the food. Go out and learn from people and learn not just food, but life. Chris Shepard is a chef and restaurateur who truly embodies Houston's ethos. At his restaurant, UB Preserve in the Montrose District, ingredients like fish sauce, chili oil, and tamarind make regular appearances on the menu. I wanted to talk to him about what it means to cook in a way that's rooted in where we live. He's written a book about it called Cook Like a Local. I was born in Nebraska, but I grew up in Tulsa, uh, Oklahoma, and moved down to Houston to go to culinary school in 95 and and really just kind of learn the city from there. You know, it took me a long time to truly understand it because it is big. It's really spread out. So it you just it takes time to start to venture into these other neighborhoods and start to understand. And, you know, as a young cook, you, you do as much as you can, but you're trying to work and go to school at the same time. So it took a lot of time. And then once I finally saw it, I was like, whoa, we need to talk about this more and more. We need to be a part of this more and more. And so that was really kind of the idea. What strikes me in terms of the the name of your new book, Cooked Like a Local, I think it's really interesting that often in the culinary world, when we say local, we're referring to ingredients. But there's this whole other local, as in the locals, the people who make up a community. Yeah. For the longest time, it's what we started to do. You know, like we were cooking locally. We were sourcing all of our product locally. And then it kind of dawned on me, especially when we opened up the restaurant, that like, locally doesn't actually mean the product. I mean, it's a good part of it, but it's it's how do you take the influences of where you're at and the people that are around you, learn from them and then cherish them and kind of show them and put everybody on a pedestal. Um, it took me not too much time to realize that that was the best way to go about life. Some years ago when you were opening Underbelly, you stodged at a Vietnamese restaurant. 
Why did you decide to do that? And what did you gain from that experience? I was asked to go to a restaurant, actually in Pearland, right outside of Houston. And I fell in love with it. You know, I, 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 was, I went with a, a, a journalist and she was like, I need you to see this. I fell in love with the people. It was, hey, can I come back here and hang out with you and, you know, talk to your mom and, and learn? And it was like, yeah, absolutely. And just the openness and willingness to show me and to talk me through things. And it was really kind of funny because it was like me talking about food and then, then in turn talking to me about business. And it was, it was pretty fun. It made me start to learn that, you know what, I need to do this at a lot of places. So it was, you know, doing that in a small Vietnamese restaurant. And then, you know, the Thai restaurant that I go into all the time, Asian Market, that was a grocery store. I would basically go there to buy product and I would eat, you know, every time I was in. And finally, Lawrence, I was like, hey, can I just come hang out with the crew? And they're like, no. <laughs> I was like, all right, that sounds fair. And then, you know, next time I'm in, I'm like, you going to let me hang out with the crew again or no? And, you know, the answer is no. Okay. And it's like, it's very small back there. I'm like, I understand that. I'm not trying to open a Thai restaurant. I just want to see how this goes down. And they were like, yeah, sure. Two days. I was like, okay. So I went back there the first day and it was really kind of awkward and just kind of like me standing in the corner and, and, you know, four ladies looking at me like, why are you here? And then finally I was like, I'll do anything. I'll sit and peel your shrimp. I'll peel your green, your green papayas, whatever you want. So they kind of understood that. And then the next morning I showed up with donuts and donuts <laughs> are the key. Cause at that point it was like, what do you want to know? We'll show you everything. And so it was, it was kind of fun. And then, you know, he'd do that at like an Indian restaurant, a Korean place, you know, a Szechuan restaurant. And so it was just kind of like me understanding more, not so much the food, but the people. So let me ask you this. All of these folks that let you into their culinary lives and worked around you while you were looking like a fly on the wall, did they ever come into the restaurant? Yeah, they come in you know, all the time, actually. You know, I would say the Jacqueline at Saigon Paglag is probably one of our best guests. They celebrate birthdays. They, it's family now. We've become a part of everything, and we've done that together, and that's the beauty of it is that we've taken the time to not just talk about food, but to talk about life. Seeing AJ get married, you know, seeing his kids grow up, and, and that's what it should be. Talk to me about Houston's distinctive geography and, and the approach to city planning or, or not. <laughs> the, the, the no zoning laws? Uh, yeah. And how it informs that the way people eat and shop and cook. There's districts everywhere. There's not really per se, like you would talk about Vietnamese food. I mean, it's everywhere. It would be as if uh, any other city's pizza joints or burger shops or whatever, that's banh mi and pho shops everywhere in the city. You know, it's just broken out into so many different areas. You know, it's like 680-something-plus square miles of just, like, people. And, you know, there's not really, like, this is this section, this is this section, this is this section. The the Mexican Salvadoran communities are everywhere. I mean, there there is, per se, Asian Town, um, which is Bel Air, which is, like, six miles of just Vietnamese, Chinese. Korean is starting to be popular there, too, but the Korean part of town is up on I-10, which is another little area of the city like that's on long point which i think is probably the most diverse like six mile stretch that you can go down because you can start off and there's there's el hildogense which is based on only food from hildago and then right next to it is a thai spot and right across the street from that is a vietnamese restaurant it's beautiful to see how integrated as a city we can be you suggest ingredients as an entry point that you've used to diversify your cooking so yeah. let's start with fish sauce because 
it's everywhere in Houston, right? <laughs> it's, it is. It's everywhere. Do you um, have a favorite brand? I use Red Boat specifically. My better half and I, Lindsay, we had an opportunity to take a vacation a couple of years ago. And I said, she said, well, where do you want to go? And I said, oh, I think we should go to Vietnam. She said, why? I said, I want to learn more about Houston. And she was like, that's smart. Let's go. And while we were out there, was, I called and I was like, can I come by and see Red Boat? <laughs> like, they're like, yeah, of course. We'd love to have you out. And so it was just a small, short flight to Fuquak Island to see, you know, the production of everything and see in a sea of teal boats, there's one little red boat. <laughs> it was like we talked to, you know, the owner of the company for a long time. And I was like, do people think you're crazy for what you're doing? He's like, absolutely. And I was like, then I like it and I'll support it. <laughs> you know, because it was, there's no fillers. There's no colorings. There's no, it is what it is. And so I fell in love with that. Tell me a way that you use fish sauce in your cooking that was surprising to you. I think it's a good base for almost everything. Like not everything, but it gives you that hidden sodium umami characteristic. I hate to say things like that, but you know, I, I think when people, you know, with the book, especially they're like, what recipe do you like? I'm like page 38. What it's, is page 38? So it's an herb marinated grilled chicken, right? So it's a puree of cilantro and, and green onion and garlic and honey and chilies and lime juice, but fish sauce. And you marinate the chicken and then you grill the chicken, right? Super, super easy. And it's not like fish sauce in your face, where it's like you would use it as nakmam or, or like a dipping sauce. It, it's it's there, but it does something to the chicken that gets people to kind of grasp their head around what fish sauce is about. You you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that you're a Nebraska boy. Mm-hmm. So you've obviously had a long relationship with corn. Yeah. <laughs> growing up shucking it and yeah. eating it. A lot of it, yeah. Can you talk about what you refer to as the shame dungeon? Because I feel like... Um, I have also, as a pie maker, been relegated to that same space <laughs> that cornstarch um, creates. You know, as a cook, like, you talk about cornstarch and people just look at you, like, cross-eyed, like, what are you doing? Like, why would you put cornstarch in anything? It's like, no, no, no. It has its place in life. For coating of things, it works amazingly well. We use dishes with rice flour, cornstarch, and just kind of dredge chicken in it and then fry it. It's absolutely perfect. A lot of the things, just like tightening up a little bit of sauces, like mapa tofu, it's perfect. There is no other substitute for that, really, for those style of dishes, like quick cooking walks. It's perfect. So with all the talk about appropriation in the food space, Mm -hmm. what are some of the more egregious examples that we would want to keep away from? For me, how how I feel about that is I'm like a NASCAR race. I hate to use this analogy, but it's the only way I can really do it. It's any kind of race. If we can all push together to be better, then we win. It's highlighting and supporting and loving people, not just telling their story, but telling the story with them and hanging out and understanding and becoming part of a friend and a family. And that's kind of how I approach things. It's, it's not me doing things. It's all of us doing things together. It's what we say at the restaurant, you know, preserve and what Underbelly had at the very beginning is um, I want our food to be the, the gateway for people to go out and experience these things on their own and enjoy their lives. We have photos on the wall of right now, it's, it's on the website, but there's 50 that kind of tell you like, you like this, now go get this. That's so genius. So like, if you like this from my menu, now go eat that. Because like, I'm never going to put pad thai on the menu, like a banh mi, but I'm going to put flavors that remind you of these things. Our check presenter is 50 
different places in the city, right, that inspire us on a daily basis. This restaurant does this. This restaurant does this. Go talk to this person. Do this. And then at the bottom of it, it's like, thank you so much for coming in today. We really appreciate it. We would like to have you back, but we, you know, we politely request that you go visit at least one of these places before you do. So it's kind of like our roadmap to our city. And so when people come back and they're like, look, I've been here, 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 I did this, and it's I met this person. Like, to me, that's understanding where you're at. And that's the cook like a local. I mean, you can do that in any city in the country if you're just willing to. Chris Shepard is the chef owner of Underbelly Hospitality. He's the 2014 James Beard Award winner for Best Chef Southwest, and this summer was named Best Chef in the World by The Rob Report. His book is Cook Like a Local. After the break, we're continuing our focus on local foodways here in Southern California. There's an upcoming symposium you should know about. Stay with us. We're back on KCRW's Good Food. I'm Evan Kleiman. Many of you are familiar with Southern Foodways Alliance, the organization that documents and celebrates food culture in the American South with amazing programs and publications. I've long wished that we had something like that here, and I'm happy to say that now we do. It's called Southern California Foodways Project. Professor Oliver Wang is one of the project's organizers. He's here with me now to talk about their inaugural symposium that takes place a week from now. So why do it? Why create this organization? We have a bunch of really skilled writers exploring the subject anyway. Right. And I think this speaks to your point, Evan, is that one of the things that the Southern Foodways Alliance has done so beautifully over the two decades they've been around is to bring together all of these different parties and forces and communities that are centered on food, but maybe from different angles. So writers, scholars, restaurateurs, farmers, food justice advocates, and so forth. And to find a kind of a big tent approach to bringing all these folks into conversation with each other as a way of exploring this relationship between food and food culture and the food industry and a local region, whether it's the South or in this case, Southern California, which I think we can both agree is, is already plenty complex enough to warrant that kind of focus. So we actually have our first symposium coming up on October 11th and 12th at the Autry Museum. Can you talk a bit about what's going to be happening there? So the symposium is going to be a day and a half. We're going to have a keynote speaker in conversation with one of our fine journalist friends. Tian Nguyen will be interviewing Tony Tipton Martin. And this is on Friday night. And I think some folks in L.A. should certainly be familiar with Tony's work. She used to be the nutrition writer at the L.A. Times and is about to release a really incredible compilation of restaurants gathered from about 200 years worth of African-American cookbooks. And so they'll be talking both about the history behind the project, but I think also engaging with a conversation about whose stories get to be told. One of the things I should have mentioned is that the symposium theme this year is on the people's history of food in Southern California. And so part of what we're trying to focus on are those stories that perhaps don't get told as much or get left out of the so-called official histories. What happens on the 12th? On Saturday will be a lineup of seven speakers, and we're trying to capture as broad as possible uh, a cross-section of our different Los Angeles communities. And so that's going to include Taco Maria owner Carlos Salgado coming up from the Orange 
Orange County. Uh, Frank Shong, the Los Angeles Times columnist who's been writing a lot about the intersections between food and community, will be one of our other speakers. Indigenous food waste scholar Claudia Serrato is going to be another one of them. And so the goal here is really to have people representing different aspects of the many different food communities we have here in Southern California offering tidbits of thought. You can describe them as a series of amuse-bouches, perhaps, that will then lead into larger conversations amongst the folks attending. And I should just say that some of the meals during the conference are going to be really interesting. We have a group of people from the Thai Community Development Organization, a group of women putting together a lunch And then a new arrival Syrian family who's being represented by Mary's List will be doing a dinner. The only way you can uh, join in those meals is to register for the symposium. Correct. This will be at the Autry Museum in their auditorium. And it seems like a very good partnership in terms of an institution that's dedicated to the history of the West and a project that we're putting on here that is very much delving into one aspect of that history, which is how do we eat and how do we share our meals? That was California State University Long Beach professor Oliver Wang talking about the new organization, the Southern California Food Waste Project. For information about getting tickets to the symposium on October 11th and 12th, Go to kcrw.org slash goodfood, and you'll find a link there. Finally, the Market Report. Here's Jillian Ferguson. This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. I'm here in Santa Monica today with Kevin Meehan of Cali Restaurant, which is over on Melrose. And Kevin, I spotted you in the middle of the market carrying something I have never seen before. Describe what's in your arms right now. I have, um, it's about two feet long, maybe about a foot wide at the base and about four inches on top. It's white and it's got multiple layers to it. It's a Hearts of Palm from Murray's Farm. And so what you do is you kind of peel off the layers here and then the inside core is uh, super tender and delicious. And towards the base, if you peel it back, there's like layers of like, ah, oh, that one's a little too woody and you peel another one off, it gets less woody. But it comes to a point where it's like, imagine a really large turnip and you can slice a paper thin. However, I'm still kind of working on this. I, it's new to me as well. I gotta tell you, uh, the bottom of it has like a kind of a weird flavor to it that I dislike and I'm not serving the bottom. However, I'm still experimenting because I know I could figure it out. I bet you if I, if I slice it and maybe soak it in water for a night and leach out, there's like a flavor profile that's like kind of a weird adjective to put it, but it almost like tastes like when like you go to like a hair salon and someone's getting a perm and like that weird perm chemical thing. Okay. So I'll, I'll chew on it and I'm like, oh, crunchy, like jicama, like a thin potato. And then I'm like, mm, what's that flavor? And I, I can't get over it. And so I taste now. It's like if you know the ending, you're expecting it. So I want to figure out how I can leach out that flavor. Obviously, I slice it, I blanch it, I pickle it, and but still, I know it's there. So what I'm going to try today is I'm going to try a couple different techniques of kind of figuring out how to use this. And maybe it doesn't work. I don't know. So what's the difference between this, getting it fresh, and when you get it in like a can, for instance? Do you know how the cans have been processed? I'm assuming the canned version, you know, they, they do all the work for you. And then they probably, you know, you know there's different levels of quality. And, uh, you know, there's probably bad hearts of bomb, and there's probably good hearts of bomb. I always like learned that it was a not a sustainable uh, thing, you know, hearts of palm and bluefin tuna. These are, like the big faux pas of the culinary world, right? Uh, but what I learned is that what was not sustainable is that people just cutting down palm trees, 
and just use them for hearts of palm and not regrowing them. And then, you know, there was a big environmental impact of that. That's not good farming practice. But he grows them just for this, so that's why it's sustainable. And, you know, he plants a palm tree to cut it down. That's, that's, that's the business plan. So let's talk about the good hearts of palm that's canned. I assume they can it and they naturally brine it with a, with a little acid, hopefully no preservatives, but they do all the work for you. So I'm, I'm going the long way, and it's clearly more expensive as well. But it's the farmer's market, and it's something that, that Stephen offers, and you know, it's, it's, I need to support these guys too. Also, it's fun for my guests. You know, this with Buddha's hand, like I'm walking around today, people are like, what, what's, what is that? That's a Buddha's hand? I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna serve the hearts of palm. They're like, what's going on there? And sure, that's my niche. That's what I'm doing today, is I'm taking the weird stuff and making it tasty and beautiful. So the idea is to slice it thin and then do what with the Buddha's hand? So the Buddha's hand, another thing that's not easily prepared and it takes a little technique, the Buddha hand has no juice to it. It's all pith. The flavor, I best describe it as like, you remember like those Merino Italian ices, the yellow ones, the lemon ones? Like, no, there's like the top of it, but on the very bottom is like that weird, like the sugar settles the bottom. And like it has like a Meyer lemony, like, it's, it's so fragrant and that amazing lemon flavor. However, it's all pith and it's super bitter. So what I do is I slice it paper thin and then I, I, I blanch it and then I cook it in like vinegar with lots of sugar in it. So it's kind of like, it's simple syrupy, vinegary, and then uh, that's great. So, so if I slice the paper thin, you can kind of put it in your mouth like almost like sushi ginger and I apply it like that. So at what point in your menu is this dish gonna appear? Is this like a dessert? Is this a palate cleanser? I've been going with this dish actually. We started, uh, I, got, I came here last week, I had a heart to palm and a Buddha's hand and I rolled out last week and I'm doing a local yellowtail with a buttermilk leches de tigra and a salad of hearts palm and Buddha hand and basil with that. So, but I can't use the bottom of the parts of palm, I'll only use the tops, but I want to figure out the bottom. That's my mission today. And that's what's winding my gears today is, that's my little puzzle. And I'm okay with it failing too. So if I do it and it doesn't work out, that's okay. And my cooks learn something, I learn something, and maybe other guests out there listening can learn. Someone can help me out here. Tell me what the trick is. Because it's like, like raw olives are gross. And so someone figured out how to leach out olives and get rid of the bitterness. So there's a technique I, I'm sure that's out there that I can't find, and maybe I should, maybe I'm Googling it wrong, but either way, I'm open to the fact that, you know, I'm a student. Well, the way you described it sounds delicious to me, and uh, it's fun to hear about your experimentation. Thank you so much. You're welcome. That was Kevin Meehan of Cali over on Melrose. He is experimenting with some hearts of palm here at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. Right now is that magical time of year at the farmer's market where summer butts up against the fall. And it also happens to coincide with fig season. And Margarita Smith of Mud Creek Ranch in Santa Paula is one of the purveyors of figs here at the farmer's market. Margarita, tell us how many varieties of figs you're growing. As of right now, we are growing about 12 varieties of different figs. Some green skin with like, you know, super dark purple color on the inside, the tiger, the panache, the tiger figs, um, there's the Adriatic, there's the lighter figs, all the difference with the skin textures. Some are super chewy and meaty and like some already taste like jam and brown sugar. And are they all meant for different applications or are they all sort of just for eating out of hand? I mean, obviously all fruit should just be eaten out of hand, right? <laughs> but yeah, brown turkey is really awesome for grilling just because it's a firmer texture and it holds it up really well. And it's not overpoweringly sweet. So if you add other stuff, say you wanted to do like a honey glaze on it and roast it that way, it's delicious. And then the other figs that are less sweet, if you actually apply them like to a savory dish and roast them in the oven with say like chicken pork or whatever vegetables you wanted to do, that's another way to do them. There is one fig called the Celeste fig 
it's one of the tiniest figs, but the inside is like already pure jam and just falls apart, like super smooth butter-like, that that is probably like eating by itself is my favorite fig. Yeah, I know. I remember the first time I tasted that at your stand. It's a very special fig. So give us a sense about how figs grow because they are a fascinating fruit. They are very fascinating, and it's so it starts with the like the bud, the flower of it, and then each fig gets pollinated by a wasp. Sometimes the wasps, when they pollinate, they go into the cavity and they naturally just get stuck there or die in that sense. But by the time that you eat it, it's already decomposed enough that it would just it's the same idea of like compost and it, all the materials and proteins being broken down and all you're getting is nutrients out of it. And when you talk about the wasp, it's a very specific fig wasp, right? Yes, yeah. I can't remember the specific name of it right now, but it's a wasp that isn't indigenous to here, obviously. But yeah, it just helps pollinate the figs. And do you happen to know where where do figs come from? What part of the world? Originally from the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they're actually, so it turns out with us and the direction that we were going to uh, maybe like six years ago with California drought and uh, having more drought tolerant crops, I guess is a good way of putting it. Uh, we decided to plant more figs because they're very drought tolerant. and. Oh. They survive with, like, little water. And one of the last times I spoke to you was actually right after the fires a few years ago. Have you guys been able to rebuild your farm? For the most part, all the orchards planted again, which is really nice. They're all super young trees. Uh, We planted more apricots and stone fruit and things like that, and more lemons, because it turns out lemons are much better fire retardant than avocados. You still deal with some stuff with insurance and waiting for the barn, but that is slowly happening this summer, so that's really good. That's great to hear. Wonderful. Well, how much longer will you have the figs? Probably, I would say we'll have them like maybe for another three to four weeks. Okay. All right. Great. Well, thank you so much, Margarita. Yeah. Thank you. That was Margarita Smith of Mud Creek Ranch. She and her parents, Robin and Steve, farm up in Santa Paula. For The Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. That's it for our show this week. In case you missed any of it, listen on our website or on KCRW's mobile app. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And as always, leave us a review if you liked what you heard. My thanks go to the Good Food team. They are Nick Liao, Laryl Garcia, Joseph Stone, Chuck P., and Ronnie Mickelson. Special thanks to Laura Kondarajan, Amy Ta, Kenny Ng, and Jacqueline Kim. I'm Evan Kleiman. I'll be back next week with more good food.